Welcome to the Speak Like a Leader podcast with John Bates. Welcome to the show. Uh, with me today, I've got someone that I got to know a little while ago, and uh, there was something that I really, I really found especially inspiring about him. But let me tell you about it. Before I tell you who it is, let me tell you that he founded his first firm at age 17 and he won Entrepreneur of the Year in Southern California. And he has also been named the father of corporate culture. He was named a thought leader of trust in America. He is a triathlete who is undefeated in his age group. And he's coached dozens of Fortune 500 CEOs. So, you know, he's one of those guys that just from knowing what he's done, it, it kind of makes me lean forward and want to hear more. And I can tell you from our conversations and from the time that we've spent getting to know each other that I think he is a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And obviously, I'm not the only one. So I'm really happy to welcome Larry Sen. He's the chairman and founder of Sen Delaney, which is the culture shaping group within Hydric Consulting. And Hydric Consulting is a big deal consulting company. And, uh, and Larry is, you know, my, one of the things that I resonate with the most about what you do is the whole idea of corporate culture. But before we do that, let me just say that the big thing that that besides all this that really impressed me is that I felt a real bond with you because both of us are kind of older dads and I'm, you know, I'm in my late fifties and have a five-year-old and uh, you're, you're a little bit ahead of me on that curve, both of you. But um, you know, I really got the impression that you, that something changed in your life when you had your son and I'd love for you to tell us about that just to start off, if you would. That's great. Well, actually, I have several things here. One is I have children that range in age from my son referred to at 20, yeah. my son at 57. So that's- <laughs> right. I'm like your oldest son. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I actually married my Sunday school sweetheart and yeah. uh, had these three, we call them the boys. The boys are now in their 50s. and. Uh-huh. For a variety of reasons, that didn't work out. So I found Bernadette some 40 years ago. Uh-huh. And, and uh, she helped me raise the boys. Uh-huh. She got to be in her 40s and she said, you know, I told you when we got married, I might want a ch- child of my own sometime. And I said, isn't there a statute of limitations? It had been about 10 years. <laughs> and she said, uh-huh. so we had Kendra. And uh, Kendra, when I was in my 50s. Now, mm-hmm. Bernadette, back to me. About 10 years later, and she says, you know, I was in the doctor's office, see my gynecologist. And I told him, one of my big regrets in life is I didn't have another child. And he said, you have a very young body. You can do that. So lo and behold, she comes to me and she says, I want another child. Now, the problem was at that time, I was I was 64. <laughs> wow. And she still loved you. 51. Yeah. So Logan, when I was 65 years old. Now, if that doesn't cause you to rethink life. So- I want yeah. to be around for his graduation from college, which I will be. He's coming up yeah. on senior. I want to be around for his marriage. And so that really set me on another path to take my life up to another level of what I call living life as my best self, physically, yeah. mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It really well, 
raised the bar. And it made me think of youth in a different way. Uh, Age is just a state of mind. Yeah. And just a number. It's not who you are. Well, and you're a triathlete undefeated in your age group. You just got a whole bunch of old dudes together and creamed them. (laughs) Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, Uh, The real secret there is this. When when I come home from these, because it's by age group, and Logan says to me, Dad, did you come in first and last in your age group again? <laughs> first and last. That's nobody hilarious. there. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, outlived them all. That's no, the best Logan, beat a couple guys. That's so <laughs> I'm funny. I'm not fast, but I do it. That's awesome. Well, I, you know, and I think that is like lesson number one, takeaway number one already. Like there's a bunch of them, but that's a big one, right? Like I think, you know, 99% of winning is just showing up. Yep. So I love that. Well, and, and, you know, and in our conversations, I really got this, the, the sense that you, uh, not just for your family, but maybe especially for your family, you get that it's not about you and you're really there for them. And I think that that, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. That's one of the things that appeals to me about you in our conversations is just your generosity of spirit and, the difference that you want to make in the world, just one way or another, you know? So tell us a little bit about how you, how you got here and, you know, what was that, that firm at age 17 that won you entrepreneur of the year in Southern California? Uh, well, you know, my mother loved entrepreneurs and, and, uh-huh. that, and that really did affect me. She also said family comes first. And so family's mm. always really been first for me in terms of purpose. My yeah. father's very purposeful, he was one of the world's first environmental engineers, and he spent his life working on clean water and sanitation for third world nations. So wow. you know, he was 85 years old. He was still out there working in, actually in Sri Lanka, covering up open wells that were killing children from waterborne diseases. Oh, so I'm man. very inspired by that uh, yeah. in my life, by both that my mother and my father to do that. So my, my father was an engineer. And I didn't know any better, did pretty well in math and science. So I went through UCLA's engineering program, but we didn't have a lot of money. And when I was a kid beginning at the age of 11, I was selling flowers on street corners on commission. You could do it back then. There you so go. when I got to, went to UCLA, I said, hey, why don't I start my own flower peddling business? So I had up, upwards of 100 kids out on street corners on holidays and weekends selling flowers. And then I went to Europe one summer in college and saw that people brought flowers home. It was hard to do here because florists are expensive. So I was mm-hmm. the first to sell the idea of selling flowers in supermarkets uh, here in Southern California, the Vons and Shopping Bag, wow. when I was 18 years old. So I had actually two businesses then while I was going to school. So <laughs> that got me thinking, well, maybe I'm not an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went on to get my MBA at UCLA, but I also got a chance to be coach of the UCLA gymnastics team. For a couple of years oh. while I went to school. Wow. I actually shared Pauley Pavilion with John Wooden at that Ooh, time. Me and the that's gym, fabulous. And I got John's pyramid of success. So he inspired me as a coach. Yeah. Really, really want to uh, bring people along. And so those yeah. are the inspirations of my life. Um, well, that's fabulous stuff. Yeah. So when well, I got I'm a Bruin, by the way, I'm a fellow uh, Bruin. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So when I got out of school, I briefly went to work for a big aerospace company, and it was really high pay, really great, and I hated every minute of it. Yeah. I didn't know why, but it was slow, bureaucratic, mm-hmm. political, 
People were blaming each other, territorial. And I said, oh, my God, I can't work in a place like this. I didn't know at the time, but it was my first exposure to what I now know as corporate culture. I was just going to say, I was just going to say, that that certainly had an impact on where you ended up going, it didn't, didn't it? So, so I quit. And yeah. one of my professors at UCLA did consulting on the side, and he asked me to join him. So I joined him in what was more of an industrial engineering kind of consulting firm. And I began to keep observing that it was, as we tried to work on change in organizations, and many people found this out, it's a whole lot easier to decide on change than it is to get people to change. And most organizations are like dysfunctional families. They have turf issues. They have trust issues. They got territory. And so I began to think, well, what is this invisible part of organizations? Because the word corporate culture didn't exist at the time. Yeah. Part of our work back then was on on supply chain in retailers. And, and, and Larry, these, is it is it fair if I ask what year what years around this was? Oh yeah, so this will date. So coming back to the triathlete, yeah. uh, the, the question I'm always asked is, what are the secret of an 85 year old triathlete? Because that's what there I you know. go. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> so so this is the 60s. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, cool. So the 60s. Yeah. Corporate culture was two martinis for lunch and all kinds of unethical stuff. Exactly. And so, uh, so we were, Delaney and I were invited by a guy named Sam in a little town called Bentonville, Arkansas, at a place called Walmart to help him because he had a vision of bringing low cost goods to rural America. He was going to change the quality of life in America by doing that. And he was going to do that by taking the cost out of the system from the manufacturer to the customer and have his happy box with the greeter. That was Sam. And it was the most rewarding, fulfilling, satisfying work I'd ever done in my life. People, all the people in the team were working for higher purpose, not themselves. They were creative. They were collaborative. They were trusting. And it was just remarkable. We were hired about that same time to try to do the same thing for Woolworth. And I remember flying from Bentonville to New York, and it would be like actually visiting the morgue. I mean, it would be, there were just a bunch oh. of old men sitting around a table, and they were old men, and their only purpose seemed to be to maintain the status quo. And they were yeah. territorial, bureaucratic. And I said to myself, oh my God, Woolworth's going to die, and Walmart's going to take over the world. And they did. And they did. Walmart died, and Walmart took over the world. And I said to myself, oh my God, There's something they didn't teach me in school. There's something about companies, an invisible something that makes the difference between success and failure. I have to understand what that is. And that began the journey uh, in the early 60s. Wow. That's so can I just can I just want to pull a couple things out of there? Because one is one is that, you know, I. Walmart, right? Like yeah. people, people definitely have opinions about Walmart, right? Yeah, they, they, Good, bad, yeah. you know, yeah. and, but I do think that it's very interesting to go back to, okay, the problem with Walmart now is that they're everywhere and they own everything, right? Yes. That that wasn't the case when you went and visited little them. Region, they were they a little regional anywhere. company. Right. So like, how did they do that? Like they're like, as much as people might want to complain about Walmart, boy, oh boy, oh boy, 
did they do something that worked, right? Yes. And and I think you've contrasted it very well with Woolworth, which probably a lot of our listeners don't even know what that is. <laughs> that used to be a store, <laughs> you, you know. Um, and and the uh, and I think that you know what the lesson I draw out of that, which is one of the biggest lessons I think in life and in business and just anywhere. Is and I think this is where you're going, and I hope I'm not anticipating too much. No. But culture eats strategy for lunch, twelve days a week. You know, absolutely, absolutely. And that wasn't known then because mo- business schools taught mostly mechanical things: planning, organizing, directing, yeah. controlling, accounting. They didn't have behavioral kinds of courses. But I yeah. found a professor at USC. I'm a UCLA guy at USC. Yeah, who'd written a paper called "Readings in Organizational Character." It was yeah. a, a series of articles about the fact that companies were like people. They had personalities. And you can see that going from one company, I mean, different between Southwest and United, or you can yeah. any all kinds of organizations that way. And I went to Professor Wolf and I said, hey, I've got to understand this thing because it determines success and failure. He says, well, a lo- it's been mentioned a lot. No one's ever studied it. What if we paid your way through the doctoral program? Oh, nice. Pay your books. We'll give you just study this thing. You've got clients so you can study it. So that began a journey to understand what this thing was, uh, which became my doctoral dissertation. And that's part of the reason I became the father of corporate culture. The first field research ever done on the concept of corporate culture published 1969. (laughs) Wow. Dissertation on corporate culture. That is awesome. That's really awesome. That's cool. You know, can I, can we go sideways for a second? This isn't what I intended to talk about, but I have something that's coming up for me. Yeah, do it. Here you are telling us about all these opportunities in the sixties and you met, you know, Walmart before they were Walmart, you were working for Woolworth. You, you know, you got your way paid through to do this dissertation that set you up as the father of corporate culture. Here I am in college, maybe like your son uh, contemplating college, like this sounds impossible. It sounds like you're magical, like God loves you. You got all these special things. How am I ever, you know, there's no, you know, Walmart's already Walmart. I can't do that. You know, what would you say to someone who, and listen, let's give them the, the benefit of the doubt. They're, they're go-getters and things, but it, but I remember that feeling when I was in college of like, well, it's all been done before. I don't know. You know, what would you say to someone like that? I mean, were there some down moments Were there some tough decisions you had to make? Right. Yeah. So part of it, uh, the biggest guide is follow your passion, follow your passion, do what's most exciting to you, which really energizes you because it brings out the best in you. So as I think about that, I was making a lot of money. There are very few engineers with MBAs, in aerospace firms in those days, I quit and I went to work for the professor. He paid me, I think, $80 a day. I had no idea what was going to happen, but I knew yeah. I wanted to move in that direction. Yeah. So I did it. So we get yeah. the choice points. Yeah. And, and we need to be aware of the choice points we have in life. And there are yeah. always opportunities. I talked to someone the other day yeah. that said, there's never been a better time for entrepreneurs because anybody can build an app. Anybody can. My daughter, she has this wonderful yeah. online business. Uh, Help helping women who've had breakups, breakup bestie. Yep. And so she's created a great business around that just out of her yeah. in her own video. That's awesome. And so, and yeah. so the opportunities are there, but that's her passion. Her passion is helping people. And yeah. she saw a need 
in women that she wanted to help. And so she yeah. took that need. So I think it's no different then than now. The fact is you just have to be, be willing to take some risks and be willing to do what feels right. You're best yeah. served if it's something that has meaning and has purpose. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, one of the things, because that, you know, that follow your passion thing gets dragged through the mud a lot by people, right? They're like, rah, rah, you know, but here's, here's my take on that. I'd love to know what you think, Larry. Hmm. Uh, yes. Follow your passion. Of course, follow your passion because it's easy to be an overnight success when you've been doing something for 10 years. Right. And if you're not passionate about it, you're right. just not going to have the staying power to actually have any kind of an impact or make any kind of a difference, I think. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, may, maybe better phrase, it's it's um, really do what brings meaning to you. Ve- okay. Very good. Yeah. Do what, bring, do what you see brings meaning to you that gives meaning to your life. Yes. But also be practical. I mean, uh, there's yeah. this, uh, some of the work on like uh, some famous books written in the past. One of them talked about the hedgehog theory. So when I found yeah. my company, it says, do what you're best in the world at, do what you're passionate about, and do what's got a great economic engine. Yeah. And I never forgot that third one. I made a lot. Of, I was driving a Jaguar Xquant K120 Roadster when I was 19 years old, selling flowers. <laughs> and and so wow. also about making money. And uh, that's yeah. how you escape me because then you can do more. Well, you know, uh, my my friend said in his TED Talk, the funny thing about sustainability is you have to sustain it <laughs> you know and that's and profitable is just sustainable for a business yeah. right like it's if it's yes. not profitable it's not going to be sustainable right no margin no mission <laughs> there you go there you very very good boy i'm yeah. gonna say that again larry yeah so yeah so to get back to so there, kind so of there the, i am and i have now become the author of the first research on culture and I had no idea what to do with it because I was <laughs> there. I was saying, uh, okay. Then I was faced with this dilemma, and it really was okay. I get it, but you can't change culture. You have to change people's behaviors. So, how do you change habits of adults? Was the central question. How do you change habits, and especially the top of the house? Because the central function yeah. of my dissertation was a, a phrase that is attributed to me called "shadow of the leader." So the notion of that organizations become over time a shadow of their leaders is yeah. unpopular uh, in management today, but it was something yeah. in, in, invented. And the fact is you have to, how do you do that? And the normal models for change, you can't, let's say somebody top out doesn't listen or they're, <laughs> or, they're, or they're autocratic. You know, you can tell them to listen, but they aren't going to listen. Now, maybe if their spouse divorces them and says, you jerk, you didn't listen. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. Yeah. Maybe they'll sit back and think about it. So what I began to think about what causes people to change. And what I discovered was what causes people to change is typically significant life events, uh, epiphany, near death experiences where somebody who wasn't taking care of themselves all of a sudden is walking around the block and eating greens. And so I began to do research on the notion of learning through epiphanies. And there's mm. a famous social scientist, a guy named Kurt Lewin, who said, when we're young, we're like a flowing river, and then we freeze. And when we're young, we're like a flowing river, and then we freeze. And most wow. people do that. I don't want to freeze because I think when you stop learning and growing, you get old. And I don't want to do that. 
But oh, Larry, that's why I love you so much. This is why I love you. This is but, exactly um, it. You're a flowing river still. So I said, uh, thank you. So I said, um, well, I'm an engineer. Why did I learn to engineer epiphanies around the healthy behaviors of leaders in a culture? I give them aha moments about that and began to develop what's called an insight learning model. And the core of even the work Send Lady to, does today is that it's transformational. We do it with, we've done it with over 100 Fortune 500 CEOs and their teams, but it really changes the way they see life because it's not just, in, it's what we call inside out learning. It's mm. site-based learning. And so anytime something happens to you really good or really bad that really jars you, take that opportunity to sit back and say, what can I learn from that? Doesn't matter whether it's good news or bad news, there's always an opportunity at that moment in time to unfreeze and learn something. And yeah, we talked about this just before we got on. And I had a moment like that when I almost died of an autoimmune disease after I lost my company, after we raised like 80 plus million dollars. And I was so ashamed and embarrassed and hurt and upset and scared and sad that I almost died. I was in the hospital and they were thinking I wasn't going to make it. And that moment fundamentally changed me. And in our conversation, you know, I was telling you that that seems to be one of the one of the core threads through a lot of my closest, most meaningful friendships is other people who've had those things. And the thing that, that occurred to me in our conversation is the, there's all like that can happen, but then there's that second part where you let it change you. Right. Like, yes. Cause it takes both. You can have that big moment, but it, unless you get the epiphany and let it impact your behavior and who you are and how you're going to do it, it doesn't matter. And there's a mindset that goes along with that for anybody listening in terms of yeah. we all face tough stuff. You know, we've, yeah. we've learned that. And it's actually my wife's phrase. She says she wants on her tombstone the phrase, blessing in disguise. <laughs> everything, everything and anything can be a blessing in disguise. Now, yeah. I, I, uh, my story is not a near-death experience, although I've faced that too with a brain tumor back around 2000. But you uh, know, I I think that's what I was maybe remembering. But yeah, but but mine really came because I, you know, family is all for me. Um, I'm a family guy. I married yeah. a Sunday school sweetheart. We yeah, even, even dated anybody else. We went through high school together. We got married in college. Uh-huh. We had three little kids, and we had this uh, Leave It to Beaver kind of family. <laughs> the picture. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I thought that was it forever. And I was a pretty unconscious guy just out there working my ass off. And, uh-huh. and all of a sudden she realized, you know, I've been a good daughter. I've been a good mother. I've been a good wife. I've never lived life. And that, <laughs> at, and she started, I remember she started re- reading feminine mystique and other books and she decided she needed to have her own life. And, oh my God, I was devastated. That was the biggest mm-hmm. goal of my life. I'd never faced adversity. Yeah, and my marriage was coming apart, and I was just—I was devastated. I was dysfunctional. Oh. I was depressed, and but then I met Bernadette, and 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 had this uh, wonderful new life. But the big thing that happened to me was this: it was during the time it caused me to say, "Who am I? Why am I here?" And what I concluded was, I know more about culture than anybody in the world. My job is going to be to bring corporate culture to the world, and I had that epiphany. Mm at the mm. depth of my sorrow saying I can help change the world uh, in this way. 
And yeah. that's where the company came from. So once again, bless the, the worst thing that happened is the best thing that happened in my life because we wouldn't yeah. be working now. I wouldn't have yeah. a loan now. <laughs> wouldn't have any of those things if that hadn't happened to me. Larry, so let's just really land that one more time. Like it's so important. And the thing that I learned from my experience like that is I wish somebody would have told me this. You may have read some Louis L'Amour books in your day. Every one of them. Okay. So there's a great quote from him that says, there will come a time when you think everything is finished. That is the beginning. Wow. Boy, I wish I would have had that. (laughs) You know, I I did not have that. And that is just the truth, right? So in that moment when it seems, because that's the big thing that happens for people in those moments, right? Like the world kind of closes in and collapses and, and, and my ability at that moment for myself to see past tomorrow was severely curtailed, right? But now, 20 years later, that that was in some ways the best thing that could have ever happened to me. I could never be doing what I'm doing, just like you. I could never be doing what I'm doing the way I do it without that. And one last thought on that, it reminds me of how important it is to have relationships, close, trusting relationships, to have networks of people who love you. Yes. My family loved me, but I had mm. a friend back then who said to me, you, you can't see it now, Larry, but you are a very special human being. You're going to love and be loved again, and you're going to help change the world. And I know it. Yeah. And I didn't know it, but they knew it for me. Oh, you know, it makes me cry. Yeah. So if you can have people in your life who believe in you in those times and can remind you of yeah. your best self, yeah. then you can take you through those things. Well, and right now we're talking in the, you know, like the beginning of the fourth wave, I guess we could call it of the pandemic of 2020. And um, I think that's a really great thing for people to be thinking about, like to be open to hearing that from people and to also be really open to who in, in your life that you may not realize it needs to hear that from you. Right. Yes. And amidst all the sadness in this and all the tragedy in this, one of the wonderful lessons I hope people don't miss is that companies have done things they never thought they were capable of during this time. Uh, in my yeah. business, for example, we run these seminars. A big core of our business is culture yeah. building team seminars like with CEOs. Yeah. And we do them in person with people sitting in a circle, you know, uh, and boom, that's gone. One day that's gone. I, I remember that day. It was for yeah. me, it was the day South by Southwest canceled. And then everybody started calling. It was like, yeah. oh, sorry, John. Yeah. So we were out of business for a moment, but we yeah. just jumped in and we created this incredible virtual version of our sessions where we got Hollywood squares on the screen, a Zoom yeah. screen, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and, and went right back in business and did an amazing job of delivering yeah. to teams in some cases where people hadn't even met each other yet, been hired in. And bringing them together and bonding them, and yeah. and creating great teams out of that. So, a good another good example. And for me, that's another learning: is you got to always be learning, be willing to try things, take opportunities yeah. to do that, and stretch yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, if yeah, companies that would insist on on being the frozen river that yep. we talked about earlier, they didn't make it. Yep. You know. <clears throat> yeah. So, so what are some, what are some, so, you know, one thing I love 
is the shadow of the leader. And in, in my work, what I, when I say that, cause I talk about similar things is I, I'm talking about mirror neurons, right? Cause yes. people are always mirroring you right. and people are always mirroring up the hierarchy. Correct. You know, I won't say the airline that comes to mind when I think about it, but like there must be some awful problem in the C-suite. Yes. Because that just spills down through everything to the baggage handlers, you know? Exactly. And and yet in other airlines that I maybe won't say the name of, it's the exact opposite. I know exactly what the C-suite conversation's like by how that person just checked me in. Yes. And it's, it's, uh, so it's one of the case studies we talk about in our work, those two airlines. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you say them? I can. It, it, has it been published? Is it stuff that's out there? Well, you know, I'm sure it's getting better, but uh, Southwest mm-hmm. is remarkable. Talk about uh, Kurt yeah. Kelleher's shadow. He love, 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 love. Yeah. He believes yes. in love, uh, yeah. love over conflict. He just yeah. had all those wonderful beliefs that made yes. things happen. Uh, yep. Um, United has had their problems. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you and I are on the exact same page, right? Here's a quick story. Exact same. United saw that saw that um, Southwest was making a lot of money with their model, so they decided to copy it some years ago, and they created, they created an airline called TED, which <laughs> and in yeah, fact, I Boeing is a client of ours, and Boeing said they had us make the exact same plane, the same distances, the same process, the same everything, and they and they had the same strategy, which is direct routes, uh, not hubs. And yet, yeah. why was that? Well, because Southwest is nimble, collaborative, customer focused, fun. <laughs> when I get on a Southwest plane, I'm happy to see yeah, those yeah. people. So that's when I walk thing. on a United plane, like I feel like I just walked into like Sourfest or something. So we have at Sendlin have taken hundreds of companies like the former and made them like the latter. And, and uh, great and to know that that can happen. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So part oh. of that is, is interesting. What it ties to is uh, there's this uh, belief I've always had. I think it was taught to me by my mother who said, you know, Larry, you came into the world naturally with this. She didn't use the word, but innate health that you are, mm. you were your natural self is to be loving, compassionate, wise, successful. That's who you are. And yeah. so this notion that we all have a best self, and uh, but over time, that gets layered over by beliefs like for me to win, you have to lose. And so part of our work is helping people connect people, not teach them something, but in a common sense way, connect them to the best of who they are. Yeah. And just decades of research, we've kind of figured out what are those essential behaviors in really healthy, high performing individual teams and organization. Yeah. So for example, one of them is they tend to be more accountable versus blaming. So there's this whole performance orientation, but they also tend to be more collaborative versus territorial. Mm. They're more they're more uh, open to change, innovative, agile than others are. Yeah, they're really more authentic and ethical than others are. They yeah. tend to be more purposeful than others are. So there's a set of essential dimensions that we've just found in working with hundreds of companies that when they're there yeah. and you can see them, that it almost lines up at Southwest that they are collaborative. They are, they have a high positive spirit. Yeah. They're, they're highly ethical. They care yeah. about the customer. Those are things that are, they have purpose and direction, get people to what's meaningful in their lives. Well, and you know, Larry, like I, for 
you know, there, there is this younger part of me, this younger version of me that was kind of looking at business from the outside that, you know, that thought that, you know, like that still is surprised, I guess, is a way to say it when really experienced thinkers like you really experienced management consultants, people, you know, all this, I always thought that the, you know, the, that younger, not as sophisticated version of me always thought that this doggy dog and like, like situational ethics and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I thought that that's kind of just how business really actually was. And over my last 20 years of doing this, I've come to really believe, and I've seen that all the people that I follow and really respect, like you and Marshall Goldsmith and, you know, all the people that really bring transformation to these companies, it really does come down to ethics works, you know, like, like being unethical might get you what you want in the short term, but in anything that even approaches the long term even the middle term, it just really isn't going to work out. And if you're not in integrity with your family and if you're, and if you're trying to be sneaky about something here or whatever, that stuff just actually doesn't work as well. It always catches up with you. It always mm. catches up with you in mm. the long run. It's just karma. You know? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It, it really does exist. What goes around comes around. And yeah. And in business too. They may have yeah. short-term gains, but then it'll bite them in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is pretty, it does kind of make me happy to know that it's not just me, like with my California sunshine, woo woo, want it to be that way. No, it actually is that way. You know, a leader who's playing the long game, who's trying to do the really consciously trying to do the right thing. They are always going to be able to look back on what they did and be proud of it. And it is just going to be vastly more successful too. It is. It I is. think that's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, you know, in this whole area and much of my life's been spent trying to understand high performing people from the time right. I, w- I was a national champion gymnast myself in the, in the day. And as mentioned, yeah. the UCLA gymnastics team and work with John Wooden. And, and so this whole thing about how do people stay at their best? And yeah. it's largely a mental game. It's largely about, mindset that, that this differentiates people because our thinking mm. drives our behaviors. So, and our thinking drives our moods and our state of mind. And so I've written a few books, actually six. <laughs> yeah. Let's my, hear them. My, my best-selling ones called uh, in on culture itself with some great case studies like Southwest is called winning teams, winning cultures, because you have Absolutely. to have winning teams to make winning culture. But the, but the one I'm most excited about is has about a concept I created to help people have a, what I call a human dashboard to tell them how they're doing in life, how they're doing. It's called mm. the mood elevator. If you think about yeah, I, a mood elevator and, and I, and my book, the mood elevator is in 11 languages now around the world. And, uh, and, and very interesting notion, probably a million people have latched onto the idea and it's pretty simple. Yeah. Every moment of every day, we ride this thing from at the top is gratitude and maybe love and being creative, appreciative, curious. Then you get down to irritated, bothered, <laughs> self-righteous, worried, yeah. judgmental, depressed. So we're somewhere along this and being human beings, we're going to ride this thing. So, you know, one of my books called Up the Mood Elevator, Living Life at Your Best. So how do you mm. live life at your best? And 
And one tool to do that's the mood elevator. So I'd really encourage people to understand what that thing is. And there's a, there's a lot of lessons in the mood elevator. The first one probably is a disclaimer. We all at some point or another tend to visit all the levels. There's nobody who always lives at the top. So get over it. <laughs> but yeah, right. But one thing you can do is learn to do down well. So what do you need to know when you're down? Well, let me ask you or anybody a question. Um, have you ever said something to a loved one you wish you could take back or a friend? And most people say yes. If I say, well, where were you on the mood elevator? Well, chances are they're down below. So the first rule of the mood elevator is do no harm. Know that your thinking is unreliable and you better be really careful if you're way down the mood elevator. If you're down at judgment, self-righteous, anger, you're going to screw something up. You're, you lose yeah. your emotional intelligence. You lose your perspective. And so just, I'm now working with a, actually the CEO of Eli Lilly. He said, Larry, I can't always be up the mood elevator, but I can learn to do no harm. So if that's all really learn was that, it'd be great. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Yeah. So that, that's a tip, but, but there are so many other, other ideas though that help. Another one that's interesting to me is this concept. It's one of the chapters in the book called uh, unhealthy normal. So there, are, you may know some people who have just seemed to have moved in and furnished the floor that says irritated and bothered <laughs> or worried. <laughs> and this is where I'm going to live. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's almost like living by the freeway and you no longer hear the noise. And so one of the keys is you've got to, you've got to be, you've got to notice it. You notice through your feelings. You got to tell where you are. Otherwise you'll get into unhealthy normal. So a lot of what we do is teach people how to ride this thing. And it's it's a very gratifying thing to do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a really important thing, Larry. I, I mean, I think you're doing some of the work of the ages. You know, it's what meditation and mindfulness has been attempting to do for just forever. And uh, and I think, it, it you know, it's kind of hard. Like you said, people get really attenuated to something. They get used to something and, and don't really realize what that's like, you know, cause we, it's hard to step out of yourself and then step back in um, and notice those things. It is. There is one level of the mood elevator that is uh, I think a great life tip for anybody. And that is right in the middle of the mood elevator is a level called curious. And, uh, and most all the levels below it begin with irritated, bothered, frustrated, judgmental, et cetera, and they go up the other way. Now, the reason it's so important is that um, if somebody does something you don't understand or you don't agree with, you can either go down to irritated, bothered, judgmental, self-righteous, or you can say, huh, I wonder how yeah. I see that. Maybe I should ask a question. Okay. Yeah. Now, which gets you the better outcome? Well, or something can happen in your life and you can either go down or you can say, huh, I wonder what I can learn from that. So I often tell people in our sessions, if people could learn, if the one thing they learned was to live life more in curiosity versus judgment. They'd I love that. Of life, they'd have a different outcome in life. So that's, that's an important tip. That's huge. That's fabulous. I think that's absolutely fabulous. Curiosity versus irritation. Because <laughs> exactly. it's just so tempting to go right to irritated, right? Like even yeah. for me, you know, that guy cuts me off on the street, right? Yeah. Instead of like being so angry and, you know, wanting, I could just say, wow, I wonder what's up with that. Right. Yeah. Or, or you know, I, I was in, checked into a hotel with a really surly uh, uh, 
evening attendant there at the desk. And I could have gone to irritated about that. I went to compassion. I said, yeah. oh my God, I'm glad I'm not him. I said, yeah. my life is so much better and I'm so blessed to have who, be who I am. And so sometimes you can go to compassion versus go to irritation. And so you have these choices if you know it. Yeah. Well, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. And, uh, and you know, uh, yeah, I love that. Uh, I, I, I have to make a confession yeah. around that. Yeah. Um, I travel a lot when there's not a pandemic. And um, so I get irritated, you know, like yes. traveling a lot can be hard. Right. Yes. And, and one of the things that I did a while ago is I realized that I would sometimes like let that out on people. Yes. And I, and I decided that I was always going to apologize. Yes. If I did that, I, 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 would stop myself and then apologize. And I remember one time something I, I mean, like, I, of course I don't remember what it was about, but I got into some kind of snitty altercation with some woman as we were getting on a plane. And then I, I was seated and it was in a plane that had seating, you know, like set, I was seated right in front of her, right? Like God was just like, okay, John here, you know? Uh, and once we got up to 10,000 feet, um, I, uh, I stood up and I turned around and she like recoiled. <laughs> she was like, she thought I was going to like go after her again. And I started to apologize wow. and I just apologized until she got it. And it took a little bit. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I said, I, I am very sorry that I acted like that. I, I don't want anybody ever to have that kind of an experience of me. And I'm sure that that wasn't pleasant for you. And I'm very, very sorry. And I take a hundred percent responsibility and I just kept going. And, and for a while, like she sat there and because she clearly thought that I was going to try and start it again. Right. And then I'm telling you, it was like seeing an angel, like it almost makes me cry right now. Mm. The look that came over her face when wow. she realized I was genuinely apologizing wow. was beautific. And she leaned forward and she grabbed my hand with both of her hands. And she said, Oh, it's okay. It's okay. I'm sorry too. It's okay. <laughs> and it was like, wow. it was one of the most profound experiences I think I've ever had, you know? Yes. yes. But so, that, yeah. So the two things, right? Like one thing is it makes me not want to, act like that as much. Right. And the second thing is that it really reinforces when I do like, that's another human when I finally apologize and I'll just keep apologizing till they accept my apology or tell me to go away. I get the experience of, Oh, that was a human being. I just did that too. So John, two tips to help you do that. One yeah. is use your feelings as your guide. And whenever you feel excessive intensity, shut up. <laughs> Good point. I could use that advice, Larry. I could certainly use that advice. Do the best job you can to assume positive intention versus motives. Yes, not, absolutely. You know, everybody's doing the best they can with their own thinking, what's going on in their lives. And, yeah. uh, and so if we, if we can just kind of do that, we really work hard with teams because they tend to get judgmental of one another, but they don't know one another. Yeah. They don't understand yeah. one another. And, if, and maybe who knows what's going on for her that created that. And so yeah. um, those help. Well, 
Yeah. I mean, it's that saying, right? Be kind for everyone is waging a great battle. And whenever I get in those situations, the other thing that I find deeply embarrassing is that if I look at it, it's almost always super obvious that I'm the person who's gotten all the the good breaks in life and all the, you know, just, you know, windfalls and blessings. And, you know, and here I am acting small, like, oh, it's so... I like the mood elevator and I like curiosity and I, and also like when I feel that intensity, have it just intensely close my mouth. <laughs> you know, Two last possible tips for you and all the listeners. Uh, the uh, we have found there are, there are a couple things that will help improve your overall standing in the mood elevator. Uh huh. Pretty simple things. One of them is just take better care of yourself. Because, you know, we catch colds because our immune systems mm. is uh, reduced when, when we're under stress and not doing well, don't take care yeah. of it. We catch moods very easily when we don't get sleep, don't get exercise. And so, yeah. for me, you know, diet, sleep, exercise are foundational to be able to have the energy and do what I do with the yeah. person I do it and, and to stay up the mood elevator. So that's number one. Yeah. That's so great. I love that. And I've been helped by that because of my, because I had a son at 65, which caused me to take up triathlons. (laughs) Yeah. And you got to be good to yourself. (laughs) The second one is pretty obvious, but it's more of a daily practice of counting your blessings. So I have Mm. a gratitude journal. A lot of people do, but every night before I go to sleep, I think back on my day, little things like, uh, the, the salmon burrito that Bernadette made or, or Logan, hug, my son, or yeah, any, look, just think, and I'll, I'll lay there sometimes say, well, that wasn't, it, wasn't that great a day. And I'll start thinking all of a sudden yeah. I'll have 10 things. Yeah. That's and, so great. And that day that you guys went boogie boarding together. Yeah. So yeah. When Logan and I yeah. went boogie boarding in the ocean together and came riding. And so, so it's, so ma- maintaining a gratitude perspective does a lot for us in terms of all yeah. that, a lot of been very highly researched. So those are just a couple of things that, help people with the mood elevator. That's great stuff. That's great stuff. So I, I, I love it. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Well, so, um, so Larry, you know, I'm so embarrassed. I mean to say this at the beginning, but somehow I skipped it. You're you, people can find you ah. and now they, they probably really want to find you. Uh, they can go to linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Larry Sen, L-A-R-R-Y-S-E-N-N. And, you know, Larry's been around and has been uh, uh, doing enough big stuff that if you just go to Google and type in Larry Sen, it's guaranteed that he'll be the first few returns. And uh, and there you have it. Um, Larry, is there anything else that I missed? Is there anything else, first of all, that you wanted to talk about? Uh, or is there anything else I should have asked about that you can think of? No, it's delightful. I mean, I, you're a great example of, of positive energy and the way you project it, John. That's why I've, from our first conversation, it's been, I know a lot of people may be listening, but I'm, you and I are talking together here and it's this wonderful conversation with some, some great meaning for me as well as for you. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're so welcome. And thank you too. I really, you know, you're, you're, uh, an example of generosity and why generosity is just such a winning formula. And I appreciate all the great things that you shared with us. I think this is really a bunch of really great, great things. And, and I would encourage you if, if, uh, if it sounds interesting, you go find the mood elevator and read the mood elevator. And, uh, and I think I'm going to go 
find winning teams, winning culture. Cause I just think that culture is just, you know, company culture is just the absolute key. And, uh, and, you know, I th- we've got a lot of people listening here that are large organizations. We've got a lot of people here that are entrepreneurs or solopreneurs. I mean, company culture starts with you. You know, even if you're a company of one, yes. What is your culture, right? And and I always remind people as they're growing, it's never going to be easier to impact your culture than today. The only easier day was yesterday because things are getting ingrained and more people are coming on and all this stuff is happening. And so, you know, today's the day to impact your culture, your company culture. And today's the day to think about that. Uh, you know, Great. it just, you only, you know, it's never going to be easier than today. Yes. Thank you. All right. Well, so thank you all for joining us. And uh, I, I, I'm really glad that you came and spent this time with us, Larry. I appreciate it a lot. And, you know, us having this conversation without you listening, that would also be not as useful. So to, to you listening, thank you so much for joining us on the Speak Like a Leader podcast. I will look forward to seeing you next time. And thanks for coming, Larry. Thanks. Great. Thank you for joining the Speak Like a Leader podcast. Go be awesome.